And if you're just joining us, we're glad you're here. We've been in a vision series on the church, uh, learning what exactly the church is and why it matters. And here to help us with our scripture reading is Helen. Our reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 32. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, Dan McDonald here, one of the pastors of the church. And we are continuing our series on the nature and beauty and glory of the church. This week, we get to think of the church as the bride of God, the bride of Christ. When I was in my early 30s and I was single, I was living in the Vancouver area. And I went to a, quite a large church. It was very fast growing. It had uh, very vibrant uh, church uh, worship music. And it was considered the hip church. Uh, at the time, and all kinds of uh, particularly young people, young marrieds, young people, young singles, were going to it and flocking to it. <clears throat> and I remember really enjoying the worship leader. He seemed like a great guy. So I decided that um, I would grab coffee with him. And there I was having coffee, and about five minutes into our coffee, he looked at me with kind of a haunted look and said, Dan, where's the leading edge of worship right now? And I, I looked at him, I'm not a musician, uh, worship is, you know, not my specialty. And so I said, I, I have no idea. Why? He said, I need to get to the leading edge of worship. And I said, you're already one of the best worship churches I've ever experienced. Why? And he said, because that's why all these new people are coming and we want to keep it that way. I just need to get to the next leading edge of worship. And I looked at him, and I saw that haunted exhaustion in his eyes. A little while later, he had to take a sabbatical, and then he left. He had become burnt out by trying to cater to the consumeristic desires of people. This is typical in the church of our time. We look individualistically, we look consumeristically at the church. We think of it as a service provided to us as customers, and if it's not meeting my needs, we move on. This is true in the secular culture as well as the church culture. Um, I keep hearing from people who are in our city who are not particularly Christian, what does the church do for the city? What good does it do for me? What good does it do for us? How does it help those who are not even part of the church, who don't even believe? Uh, the question is not irrelevant, by the way. The church should be a blessing to the city. 
but the question itself shows the paradigm that has sunk into our minds. Wherever we are in our spiritual journey, the church should be good for us, even if we're not part of it. A couple of, uh, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago uh, now, um, we noticed something that had happened. We were renting a church at a school. The school allowed us to park on the grounds, even on the grass. And then one day they said, we're redoing the grass and you can't park there anymore. That week, we lost 50 people in attendance and we never got them back. I remember a month or so, two months, three months going by and having a phone conversation with one of the people who hadn't come back. And they said, Dan, I was a couple minutes late for the church and I drove in and there was a no parking sign where I used to park. So I just kept on driving, Dan. No parking lot, not for me. You see the mindset? We need to ask now, is our view of the church God's view of the church? Because when we ask that question, we begin to realize, not even close. In this passage, a passage that is ostensibly about marriage roles, Paul reveals a profound truth about how God views the church. God views the church as his beloved bride. And in this passage, we're going to see the length and the depth and the height of God's groomsman's love for his bride. The height, the depth, and the love. let's, Let's look at these three. Excuse me, the length, the depth, and the height. The length of God's love for his bride. Now, Uh, Most of you who heard the passage read uh, are waiting for me to discuss the controversies around parts of this passage. Uh, You want, actually you're going to have trouble listening to my sermon until I address some of the ways that it discusses marriage roles. Well, my sermon isn't about marriage roles. I'll be happy to discuss those in the Q&A after the service. But just take a moment and think about your attitude. I don't want to really listen to the sermon until he answers my questions. Do you hear the consumeristic mindset behind that? I want to ask you this question. If the, what God says in the Bible doesn't fit your needs or your values and make you feel good, what do you do with that? What do you do when God's standards are different, when God's standards critique yours, when God's standards offend yours? Men and women, God is not here to make us feel good all the time. He's not a retailer looking to woo us in as customers. He's a creator. He created us. And in His divine wisdom, God made us in a way, a certain way, and He knows how we were meant to flourish. And in His love, He tells us that. Yes, has the church abused some parts of these passages, misapplied them in very sexist eras of human history, to embed and to enforce sexism? Absolutely it has. We need to grow from that. Does this passage teach that men and women are unequal? Absolutely no, it doesn't. We actually all know this, though. We know that in the workplaces that we inhabit, different roles in our companies and our workplaces do not connote different levels of worth. But for some reason, when we read this passage, we think, hmm, different roles must mean different levels of worth. No. 
The whole New Testament says no. The fact that God the Son would humble himself and take a different role than God the Father while being fully equal says no. Best-selling author Tim Keller said it well when he said, God critiques every culture. And every culture is uncomfortable with part of what God says to it. Our culture loves certain parts and doesn't like certain parts. We get that. This is what God says to us, though. In the gospel, hear this now. In the gospel, the husband is to represent Jesus Christ. And in the gospel, the wife represents the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. And because of that profound truth, we do have different ways that we relate to each other. We relate to Christ differently than he relates to us. But let's look now at how he relates to us. Jesus is our groom. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's a groomsman's love for a bride. So I want to ask this question. Christ loved the church, it says. Before the church knew Christ, Christ loved her, it says. He gave himself for her. He gave himself before the church of Jesus was born. He died for her before. And so it asks the question, or it begs the question, how long did Christ love the church and seek to make her his bride? How long? Has he loved us as his bride? Well, if we look at the whole of the Bible into the Old Testament, we will see that, we've, that God has loved his church from the very beginning of human history. In the origins of humanity, in the Garden of Eden, it says that God treated us like a spouse. In Genesis chapter 2, at the very beginning of creation... God said, it's not good for the man he'd created Adam to be alone. So I will make him a chazer, fit for him, a a helper, fit for him. The Hebrew word chazer there means someone who comes alongside another to help accomplish the goals or tasks that they have been tasked with. And then what does God do? God acts like a chazer. He brings all the animals in front of Adam and has him name them and sees them two by two so that Adam can realize he's incomplete without a bride. But who's acting as his heir in bringing all these animals to? Who's acting like his spouse? God is. God's acting like a wife. Am I allowed to say that? God is acting like a heir. As a matter of fact, the word heir is used about God more than any other person, any other person in the whole of scriptures. But here he says, I'm going to make a hazer. And then he acts like one. And throughout the Bible, this theme continues of God acting like a spouse. When humanity rebels and God decides to recreate a people for himself, a particular people, not all of humanity anymore, the people of Israel, he goes to Abraham and he makes a covenant with them. Listen to the language of the covenant. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your children after you throughout all their generations for an everlasting covenant. I will be God to you and to all your offspring after you. I will be yours. You will be mine. It continued all throughout God's covenantal dealings. When he renewed the covenant with Israel through Moses, this is what he said in Exodus chapter 6, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. 
who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. Leviticus 26, that's Exodus 6-7. Leviticus 26-12, I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. It's the language of love. It's the language of covenant communion, a marriage. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, listen to the love that we're to have for God. It is so intimate. The Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Uh, These words I command you today will be on your heart. This is the language of lovers. This is the language of spouses. It kept going all through the Old Testament. A couple quick examples. When Israel turned away from God and that covenant with Moses... Listen to what God says in Hosea chapter 2 about bringing them back. He says about Israel, his people, she will pursue her lovers but not overtake them. She shall seek them but not find them. Then she shall say, Hosea 2.7, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. Do you hear that language? And in verse 14 he says, Therefore behold I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. Verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You hear that language? All through human history, starting with all of humanity, with Adam and Eve, and then in the remaking of God's people, in the people of Israel. It's the language of husband and wife, lover and beloved, first to Adam, then to Abraham, then to Moses, and now to all of us. But actually, it goes back further in time than the beginning of human history. Because in Ephesians 1, it says, We were chosen before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless before Him. We were predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? God the Father and God the Son have been loving us, planning for this marriage since before the world was, since before time began. If there was a Big Bang since before the Big Bang, there was this love for us, this groomsman's personal love for a bride. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, I just, I know this is staggering and strange, but what would it be like to know God loves you this intimately and to know God has loved you for this long? How would it change you to know that the, the, the very creator of the universe has had this kind of eternal care and love for you. How might this root you, calm you, free you, solidify your identity, give you a sense of self and love and peace and place in this world so solid because the creator of the universe has always felt this way about you. That's what the gospel offers you. And if you're here and you are a Christian, think about this the next time you think about the church. The church that we love and then hate. The church that we like because it fills our needs and then kind of grow distant from because it's not meeting our needs. That's not the way Jesus felt about the church. This is my eternal bride. I will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to make her my own and keep her. The length of his love for us is eternal. 
And by the way, as we're about to see, it started in eternity past, and it will go on forever and ever and ever into eternity future. The length of his love for us is unending. What about the depth of his love for us? I would say it's unfathomable. Back to that verse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, I'm just going to look at those two phrases. Gave himself up for her. Who's the her? And what does it mean to give himself up? Well, let's look at those two. For her. Who's the her? Well, we're the her. I'm the her. You're the her. And who are we? Isaiah 64, 6 says this is who we are. We've all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf and our moral wrongs like the wind take us away. Do you hear that? We're not worthy to be his bride. Romans 3 in the New Testament puts it so poignantly. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You hear that? Do you hear that? I do on average 10 to 12 weddings a year. A little less than COVID. (laughs) But I can tell you this. Every bride... I have ever witnessed looks ravishing and radiant on her wedding day. She looks like someone, no offense, guys, she's way out of your league on that day. Husband's got a tuxedo and a goofy grin on his face. The bride is unbelievably radiant. She looks like she deserves his love. And from human speaking, humanly speaking, she does. But the depth of God's love is this. We're not a radiant bride. We're an ugly, adulterous, cheating, defiant, do our own thing, care about our own way bride. We've chased after other lovers. Here in the verses I quoted, it was usually false gods like Baal. But for us, we don't name them that. We name them our career, our kids our looks, our wealth. Those, those are the gods that we chase after. Those are the gods that frame our schedules, determine our dreams, focus our energies. We make good things, ultimate things. We allow them to be our first and great love and the foundation of our lives. And they're not the true God, and we weren't created to be like that, but that's what we do. That's the her that he gave himself for. Totally undeserving. But what does it mean that he gave himself for her? Who's the he? The sinless, perfect, matchless, divine, glorious Son of God, Jesus the great high priest, Jesus, God made flesh, the invisible God made manifest, the beauty of God incarnate. What does it mean that He gave Himself? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Son of Man, the Beloved One, 
whom God told the world, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, became a curse with whom God poured out, upon whom God poured out all of his judgment. Smitten by God and afflicted, says Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our moral wrong. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The God-man took the sin of man and woman and the world upon himself, took the corruption and stain of our adultery and rebellion and betrayal, and walked with it every day of his human life and knew of it every day before he became human and still gladly bore it. He took the mighty, settled, measured, logical, totally deserved wrath, judgment, and condemnation of his father aimed at us, and he got in the way. And he said, don't let it hit them. I'll take it. And his father said, I will, because I love them too. He paid the price demanded by justice. He paid the price that we should have paid. He paid the price his Father asked him to pay. Because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they love us like a groom. They love us in the depths of our slime and our gross, disgusting selfishness. He paid the infinite debt we owed God with His infinite righteousness and holiness. And in an instant, the infinity of sin and guilt and shame and debt was paid. So Christ could say, within minutes, He could say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because He was taking the debt. And minutes later, He could say, it is finished, because He had paid it. The beloved of God became the accursed one before God so that we who should be the accursed ones are now the beloved bride of God. That's the depth of God's love. He gave His only Son. Finally, what is the height of His love for His bride? It says in verse 26, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. The Word is the truth of the gospel of what He's done so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ didn't die for us just to forgive our sins. He died to take us somewhere. He, taught, he died to make us someone. He died to make us this radiant bride, to, to, to make us beautiful inside as well as out. To sanctify means to make beautiful morally, ethically, spiritually. He sanctifies us, makes us more and more morally beautiful, progressively makes us more and more loving, more and more gentle, more and more faithful, and less and less betraying of Him to other lovers. And then one day, and this is the goal, the goal of His work on the cross, 
the goal of his putting his spirit in us to help us understand the, the, the length and the depth of his love so that he can bring us to the heights. One day he's going to present us to himself. It says in splendor without spot or wrinkle, we will have all sin, all selfishness, all moral wrong taken from us. At the end of days, the time when the renewal of all things is at hand, Romans 8 says the time that the whole world is groaning for right now, that day of redemption and freedom, in that day, the days of being cleansed will be over. We will be completely clean. We will be without sin forever, without evil forever, in a world without evil forever. Think of the height of his love, where it's going to bring us. Listen to Revelation 19. And see a snapshot of our future. I heard the voice of what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. 19 verse 6. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying hallelujah. For the Lord our God reigns. The Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And it has been granted her to clothe herself with fine linens, bright and pure. One day, God is going to consummate his marriage to his bride. And she will be pure and holy. You and I will be pure and holy and radiant if we're Christians. And the whole cosmos will be renovated and renewed and made new for us. We'll enter this paradise again. Paradise will be regained forever. We'll live in the garden of God with God himself as our groomsman. A world without taint, sin, evil, racism, sexism, poverty, anything wrong. No more anger, no more tears, no more anxiety, no more shame, no more COVID. That's how high his love is. We will ascend those heights made new, perfect, incorruptible, eternal, we shall be created for our husband. Right now we live between the marriage ceremony, the cross, and the wedding reception, the final banquet. God has purchased us by sending us on Jesus Vindicated his status as our bridegroom by raising that son. Sealed our marriage to him by sending his spirit into your life if you are a Christian. And is preparing the marriage banquet feast for us right now. A feast the world has never seen when he returns to make all things new. Now, quick applications. A, in light of the length of God's love from eternity past to forever in the future. In light of the depth of God's love, His own Son giving Himself for you, giving Himself as a sacrificial offering in place of you so that He could give Himself by His Spirit to you. That kind of self-abdicating, servant-oriented, humble, compassionate, oh my gosh. Can you not submit to that kind of leader? Say, that's what we're called to do. Follow Him. Submit to Him in everything. If you're a skeptic, for the first time maybe, you just need to give your life to Him and say, 
Someone who loves me that beautifully will guide me that carefully. I submit my life to him. I give Jesus my life. If you're a Christian, maybe you need to give it back to him again. Let him nourish you. Let him cherish you. He is our bridegroom. And it says in Ephesians 5, the husband nourishes and cherishes the bride. Let him nourish you with his word. Let him nourish you with his spirit. Listen in prayer to his spirit telling you how much he loves you. Read his word and hear how beloved you are. Listen to how he cherishes you and protects you through his church, through people who encourage you, who admonish you, who hold you accountable. This church is this beautiful body which shows the glory of his bride, if you will let it. As Christ loved the church, though, not only should we submit to him as the bride, we should look at the church, his bride, with the eyes that he has and love that bride and nourish and cherish that bride. You know, in these days of COVID, it's easy to get weary of church, wary of church because it's been so broken over the years and weary of church because it's hard. It's hard to connect when you're not allowed to meet. It's hard to feel the love. It feels a little more like work to serve the church. Welcome to Christianity. Yeah. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, what he means is watching us, watching us right now are a cloud of witnesses Believers from eras past who have died and are now in heaven are watching us, part of the bride. They're watching us to see if we'll walk by faith and if we will endure. That's the whole point of Hebrews 11, by faith. We long for a city that is to come and by faith we endure. We keep nourishing and cherishing the bride. Not too long ago, uh, something happened which has happened many times, and I had to say something to someone which I've had to say many times because it was first said to me. I remember when I was a leader in a, in a Christian organization and I was frustrated by its present lack of productivity, fruitfulness, effectiveness, and I was talking to the overall leader about it. I was sort of one of his lieutenants. And we were talking about it. He had primary weight, but I was supposed to help him changing the culture and, and the effectiveness of this. And finally, he looked at me. He says, okay, Danny Mac, we've had about three weeks of assessment now, and we know all the problems. There's a fire in this ministry. And the question I want to ask you is, are you going to keep pouring gas on the fire with your criticisms? Or are you going to pick up a bucket and start pouring water on that fire? Church is the bride of Christ for whom he died. Every church, our church included, has fires everywhere. We've had a tough season. Are you going to pick up the gas and pour more gas on the fire by your critiquing, by your kind of checking out? Or will you pour water on the fire and love the church? Because the church 
is His bride. I know what Christ is calling you to do. Will you obey His voice? Let's pray. Father, I thank You and praise You for Your goodness to us. And I pray now that You would help us. Help us to enter into Your deep, abiding, eternal, self-giving, self-sacrificing love for Your bride. And I pray that we would see in that someone we can submit to, someone we can follow, someone we can imitate. May the, the, the gospel of your love for us crash down upon us. And may the Spirit who loves us as you love us elevate us to lift our eyes and see the church in all of her bridal radiance and to work toward nourishing and cherishing and making her more and more beautiful for the joy set before us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.